Wonderful. So I'm Alison, for those of you who may not know me, um, and I'm leading this Neurotech group in which group we're currently having this seminar. So there's a bunch of people from this Neurotech group in as well. In addition to that, we also invited a few folks um, who are, you know, like, I guess, like guests that are particularly interested in this topic. What is this topic? The topic is uh, whole brain emulation in particular uh, is as uh, like an AI safety hat potentially. Uh, and given that AI safety timelines have been speeding up, um, uh, or like coming down, I should say, for from some, for some people, I think it's a good time to be talking about this. I also do want to say that we are having later this year an in-person workshop around this. And so some people were confused as to what is what. This is not the in-person workshop. This is the virtual workshop. Uh, and so there will be an in-person workshop as well that will be outside of Oxford. Nevertheless, not everyone here can make it to that workshop. Um, and there's also a few other things that we could be discussing that could then inform the workshop and so forth. So safe to say, it's, I think, good to have this meeting as well. We had previous discussions around topics like that at our Vision Weekend in France and in the US, where some people, for example, like Lisa, Anders, Michael, and so forth have also been discussing this. And then Lisa led this really wonderful uh, workshop um, last weekend, I think, uh, well, two weekends ago at this point, uh, which also had tied in some of the ideas from Vision Weekend and so forth and from previous dis uh, from discussion afterwards uh, into some threads. But let's let me maybe hand it over to Robert, who will be discussing a little bit the kind of like overview of current state of AGI uh, and the dangers arising from that as he perceives them. And then we can maybe go down uh, the list of um, uh, of discussion points as I'm posting them now into the agenda. Does that sound good? Sure. Um, all right, so I'll keep this brief. Uh, we only have an hour, and I want to get into the uh, the discussion about this. But um, as a very brief background on myself, um, I run a brain preservation company called Nectome that is based on trying to preserve brains um, to eventually upload them. Um, the logic behind that is that I think we'll eventually have the technology to read these brains and essentially emulate them. Um, and I used to be involved in AI. Um, I studied under Marvin Minsky at MIT, and I stopped doing AI and did preservation because the preservation is something that is very hard to destroy the world if you get wrong and still brings a lot of the benefit of preserving people. Um, I've been paying attention to AI developments uh, since then, and I've recently grown very increasingly concerned uh, about the substantial progress uh, that's been made in the field. It's caught me at least by a bit of surprise um, since I've been more involved in the preservation front and um, shifted many of the calculations that uh, previously made sense to focus on preservation. Um, so um, it certainly is debatable uh, and I'm not super interested in debating it uh, here, but uh, by my own metrics, judging whether uh, an AI would be what I would consider generally intelligent, um, which maybe a little more forgiving than most people's, I would judge uh, something like ChatGPT to already be generally intelligent. Um, I'm basically comparing to what a high schooler might be able to do. And um, I think that's very substantial. Um, it clearly hasn't gone to destroy the world yet. There's certainly a lot of uncertainties about what the fundamentals of intelligence are and what the pathways for this will be. Uh, but whereas previously I was kind of thinking, you know, there's a good shot that maybe it'll be 30 years and we have very diminishing returns on neural networks. Um, that's just not the world we're in anymore. So uh, updating on that, I think that you can expect to see very advanced uh, improvements in the state of the art, like quickly. Um, so that being said, I think it makes sense to revisit essentially the only thing I've ever seen that even stands a chance at 
um, creating a type of AI that would naturally be aligned with people, which is uploading. Um, and previously, you know, actually approaching this problem seemed like it was too hard. And it's something that, you know, wait 30 years for technology to improve, simulations to improve, and kind of let neuroscience grind on and you get there. Um, but, you know, at this point, if you really expect technology to increase substantially in the future, for engineering technologies to increase substantially in the future, um, it might make sense to revisit this problem and start doing things now um, in full anticipation of the availability of those tools later. So we already had a pretty big meeting um, uh, this last uh, weekend, I mean, like, like a, you know, a, several days ago, um, and there were about 15 people involved in this, and, and we talked for a very extended amount of time, like about two to three days, um, going through various objections and various technical outlines um, for whether uploading even is feasible at all. Some of you are there, some of you are not. But to give a very brief summary of that, it's not really quite as crazy as I thought it would be. Good. Basically, it's not as crazy as it seemed. Um, and it seems like there's actually a real shock that it could potentially be done. Or at the very least, um, the general strategy here is if you're approaching the problem of uploading, there's a bunch of things that will take real time to do. And the more of those you can get done, um, if you're anticipating, you know, a scenario where you eventually get something like artificial superintelligence, then before you get that artificial superintelligence, there may be a window that maybe it's only a few years, maybe it's longer where you have extremely advanced pre-artificial superintelligent AGI engineering tools and problems that previously would have been hard to approach become a lot easier to approach. Um, but if you enter that window and now you have five years of futzing around with sample prep or tissue sectioning or scanning minutia or labeling types of things, um, and you haven't even built a basic proof of principle for simulating neural networks, uh, you'll squander that time because you'll be caught up in the, the things that take real time. So that is, uh, that's the main thing that I want to say here. Wonderful. Thank you. Also, sorry, I just got informed those were separate meetings. So I'm really happy we have both of you here to give us a brief summary of that. And then let's see if we can, uh, you know, uh, kind of like maybe, um, see if there's some synergies between them. So I hand it over to you, Lisa, to give us maybe a little bit of an intro to what you've discussed last weekend uh, and how that relates. Yeah, super gladly. So, um, yeah, basically we met two weeks ago with actually a couple of people who are in the call today. And uh, we met for two hours uh, with a specific goal to bring together alignment and neurotech researchers to jointly map out whether and how neurotech can be useful towards alignment with a specific focus on relevance with respect to current alignment timelines, which have shortened for a lot of people. Um, and also shout out to David Downhill again, who gave us a really cool keynote to kick things off. Um, and our specific goal was to try and cast the net super wide to come up with solutions that have not currently been thought about yet, um, or have not maybe received so much attention yet. And basically it was kind of an interactive workshop with the goal to come out with a type of white paper or working list of all potential approaches, um, including a first initial prioritization by technical feasibility and also kind of relevance with respect to alignment timelines. Um, and some of the key insights that came out here were that of sort of the most talked about approaches being whole emulation, cybergism, um, and different forms of uploading. Um, we thought that these are potentially very high impact, um, but it seemed really unclear whether the technical progress can be accelerated fast enough such that it might be 
producing useful outputs towards alignment already within five to 10 years. Um, so yeah, hopefully we'll get more clarity on that in May when we have our big workshop. Um, but yeah, so we basically tried to come up with other ones outside of this. And one key takeaway out of this was that we think the intersection of interpretability and neuroscience is a massively kind of underexplored topic here. And specifically, we thought about applying methods of mechanistic interpretability, um, which is currently mostly applied to large language models, also towards neuroscience questions uh, using various forms of BCI data, for example. Um, we Sorry, excuse me. Um, yes. And we thought that this could be useful, for instance, towards the approach of value alignment um, or also scalable oversight, which are two approaches towards alignment. Um, and how this could look specifically would be, for instance, methods allowing comparisons or even translations um, between human and AI latent spaces in large models. Um, and some of the like other more general ideas we generated were um, perhaps building small level enhancement technologies to help push human overseers uh, in the scalable oversight paradigm. Um, or also using BCI to somehow help bridge the ontology differences between human and machine representations. Um, and we kind of came out with that we might want to do a follow-up session to understand maybe within the five to 10 year timeline, what specific other approaches could be realized. Um, and also dive a bit deeply into what exact methods of mechanistic interpretability might be interesting to already now start applying to, with neuroscience data. Um, also given the hardware we currently have available and like the data qualities that are realistic from today's point of view and seeing what we can validate here. So, uh, the plan would be to like in a few months, maybe have a follow-up session on that. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. Learning. I'm learning so much right now. Thanks a lot for your super, um, yeah, for your super succinct summaries. Uh, Robert actually, um, says that he may have uh, an idea for to 10 uh, year timeline on uploading. So uh, why don't you give it a shot? Um, yeah, so to, since these are separate meetings, um, the main takeaways that we got from our meeting, um, which which delved a lot into the technical aspects of mind uploading, um, were to me a little bit counterintuitive. Um, there's a set of assumptions that if they're all true, um, I think you actually could get uploading done in five to 10 years um, with a lot of funding behind it. And those core assumptions are, first of all, that you can losslessly partition brains. Uh, weirdly enough, like that particular type of sample prep, um, if you can crack that problem, uh, it allows you to paralyze the scanning and makes it work a lot more reasonably. Um, the second big uh, potential hurdle that you have to bet on being true to do uploading in five to 10 years is that there's some compartment level simulation of uh, brains that will at least give you short-term behavior. Um, that would be structure and whatever, you know, some finite number of, uh, of molecular annotations. Um, if it's substantially, substantially more complicated than that, then, then the time scale is good. If it's not, I think you can do it in five to 10 years. And then the final one is, uh, weirdly enough, it's not actually all that expensive to scan an entire human brain. It's like on the order of, uh, of about a hundred million dollars or so. Um, the things that are complex are, um, and, and the flops don't actually matter as much either. We actually have enough flops to pull it off. Um, the things that screw you over are the data storage, um, like the working, the memory of the, of the system that simulated the brain and the interconnects to actually, um, allocate those flops in a, in a reasonable way. 
Um, and so there's an analogous um, compression and partitioning problem once you've got the scans, um, whether you can actually uh, simulate them. So um, those are kind of the three core things that, that we ran into. Awesome. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, next one up, we have uh, Anita here. And uh, it would be wonderful if you wanted to give us a little bit of an overview of the state of the field for urban emulation as you see it. Uh, in particular as an AGI mitigation factor. And I'm sure, sure that like piggybacks somewhat also to, to Robert's, um, uh, to, to Robert's points. Sure, sure. And, uh, also I, I will be sharing it a little bit because so much overlaps with what Randall was going to go over. So he might just jump in. So if we go a little long, it's because it's both of our presentation. Um, do you mind if I share my screen real quick? Is everyone able to see that all right? Yep. Wonderful. Okay. So thank you, Allison and Robert and Lisa. Um, and for those that don't know, my name's Anita. I'm the president of the Carbon Copies Foundation. And I will share an overview of what we understand the state of the field to be, what needs to be done as far as we can see at this stage. And a number of efforts are happening in the organization to refine this to you, but I will try to share a near accurate impression uh, with you in the next few minutes, Randall filling in a number of technical details as we go, specifically as they relate to some of the roadblocks that we've identified. So many of you um, may have seen this image before. It highlights what's known as the post-boredom scan and copy method of achieving whole brain emulation, starting with the top row concerning the data to collect, information requirements, constraints, informing what data to collect, and validation data. Um, moving on to the second row and its application on image tissue. So you may uh, see these terms and recognize machine learning process application here. Uh, so after uh, gathering the data, there's system identification and modeling, um, validation from records done in vivo on multiple levels, and the development of accurate emulation. Uh, there may be other methodologies to explore and ways of achieving some of the open questions in this process. Um, but this is the general overview and the best guess of how to proceed if people are ready to move today as expediently as possible. Um, if there is not time or a little time to dally and consider all the options, which is the direction that seems to be best understood. So... Uh, but it is a simplification, right? Uh, Robert already shared a little bit of some of the details, some of the requirements that may need to be true. Um, and there are several open questions. Uh, there are some critical process requirements, and a number of them have not been effectively addressed to start making human em emulations today, much less whole brain emulations of other organisms. Not to say it's not achievable, and it could not be done so in a timely manner, but it takes... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll need to take a look at quite a few of the gaps. So first step to do with constraints. Um, as with any system reproduction and understanding of success criteria and scale separability is essential. If we do not have these, we are basically going in blind. Um, there's the data acquisition. We will need to gather what is necessary and what loss we can cope with, understand, you know, what loss is okay um, to still achieve successful emulation. Translation is a word that covers a, a lot of things, I feel like. Um, this requires us to be able to take the data we've gather, gathered and be able to use it to reproduce the function of an active system. 
Um, then there's environment and embodiment items to be addressed along the way. They relate back to constraints and success criteria. They relate to effectively solving the translation problem and concerns about ethics and safety. And uh, that last one is what we might think of as the, you know, the human element, even though all of this is about a human individual, but what it will do to humanity and the individuals and ensuring it is the best possible outcome. So in the context of disaster aversion, um, be it, you know, imminent AGI, if that is something that is is uh, right around the corner, um, then the minimum is ensuring that it is it's at least done correctly uh, and resulting in a sane and conscious emulated person or people uh, that's, that are capable of improving the situation for humanity rather than increasing suffering overall. So a tremendous amount of effort has gone into data acquisition. That's why it is in blue there uh, and processing, but much less attention to the others. Um, the two that Randall will dive into in more detail concerns the uh, constraints and translation. So I will pass the mic over to him. Yeah, thank you. I hope you can hear me. Um, okay, so I just wanted to kind of give an overview of the main difference between, say, data acquisition and those other two, constraint and translation, because um, really the three here, constraints, data acquisition, and translation, these are areas that depend on one another in that order. The constraints first, then data acquisition depends on that, translation depends on that. And um, and the colors that I've given it here on the slide, they indicate where work has gone. So the blue ones, data acquisition, this is something where you could say, sure, there are still some research problems, but those research problems are manageable. And it's largely a matter of how do you do this at a large scale? How do you scale up the problem from samples that neuroscientists are used to working with to human brains? So it gets down to things like how can you cut up the brain without losing any uh, any slices and things like that. So um, data acquisition has had a lot of attention. Why do I put constraints first? Well, constraints are really the things that ask you, first of all, the question that you have to ask yourself is what are you actually trying to achieve? If I'm trying to build an emulation of a, a neural system because I want to find out how Parkinson's disease works, then I'm going to want to include a bunch of that patchwork that nature has used to make cognition possible because I want to find out exactly where the chain breaks and I want to know where the disease is applying itself, right? But the success criteria for whole brain emulation that we're interested in, so the cognitive experience of being an intelligent human being with memory and consciousness and all of that, that's a whole different kind of thing. So the success criteria are quite different. For instance, I don't need to know which synapses are firing right now. I don't care. I'm not aware of that. I don't know which ion channels I'm using. Don't know. Don't care. So the success criteria are quite different, although you have to care about a lot of those things when you get down to the technical and scientific problems. So success criteria come in at least three kinds. You have the scientific and the technical, and then you have the ones that are more about, well, what does a person want to achieve? What does this person want? What does a consensus of people want? Some of those don't have anything to do with science, but they all inform what you need to know. In addition to that, you need to understand a lot about the circuits of the brain and the neural code. So for example, how distributed is something that's being represented? How many neurons are involved? How many neurons are needed to do a, a proper queuing of memory? You know, that it's just all these kinds of details that you need to understand about that. Those details, together with the success criteria, they really tell you where scale separability is possible. Do we need to go down to the neuron level, do you down to the synapse level, protein level? Could you look at populations of neurons? Or can you, say, record from neurons, but then convert to something that is more like a population level activity, right? So that's why constraints are super important. It tells you 
where you're coming from and what you need, and it informs what type of data needs to be acquired, which methods therefore are feasible. Can you make do with expansion microscopy? Can you make do with, you know, with electron microscopy and so forth? And what do you need to do to convert that data? What are the characteristic dynamics that you're trying to reconstruct, right, to get a good emulation? So this constraint stuff really informs everything else. And the interesting thing is it gets important even at the point where you're just trying to do data acquisition for an entire brain. Because if you're trying to do data acquisition at the highest resolution you think might possibly be necessary, then you get to a point where it's hard just to store the data or to move the data from one place to another. So you really have to do compressed sensing. You need to do sensing like measurements where you already know something about what you need so that you can do some of the conversion in the process and keep just what you need. So, and then we get to the next problem. Another thing that really still requires a lot of research, which is the translation problem. We talk a lot about the data acquisition side and then we kind of act as if, oh, and then you just go to the model. This is just how it works. But in neuroscience, neuroscientists are used to building models by uh, looking at a whole bunch of different animals, lots of specimens of each animal, looking at behavior, seeing circuits at different levels and kinds of activity that are, they're observing, and then coming up with a hypothesis. And based on that hypothesis, they create a model, an abstract model. Then they build these models, and you know, in a computer, they're trying to get the model to work like the original. They try to get it towards a desired behavior and observed behavior, and so the model gets tuned. But the model isn't really based on a piece of neural tissue. It's based on these other general observations about how the tissue seems to work in all these different, you know, how the mechanisms work in all these different animals. So it's a different kind of modeling. What we really need is we need to go from this understanding of the architecture. We need to be able to do model selection from a set of models that apply for the types of neurons that we know, the types of compartments we're trying to estimate, right? And then the parameters for each of those. Because every time you record something, like a recording of voltage, that measurement is not the same thing as the parameter you're putting into a model. And the parameter in the model might be the exponent of something, right? And that's not what you're getting out of the voltage. These are just individual recordings of voltages. Or you're looking at the size and diameter of lines in an electron micro microscope image, right? These are little black and white pixels. So it's not the same thing. And, and then you need a way to determine whether or not that translation you're performing is actually good, which probably needs to be something that's happening in iterative style at different levels. So you have different hierarchies of pieces that you need. You need to chunk what you've got, break it down into different chunks so that you can work with pieces that are small enough that the computational problem of estimating the parameters, the optimization problem, doesn't explode. So you need to be able to break it down correctly. So what you need here is you need the target behavior. You need to understand your constraints, right? You need your validation methods, you need your libraries of all those models, and you need the method of doing the parameter estimation. You need to know a lot about this thing called system identification, which is something that, you know, is done a lot outside of neuroscience, but there are only very few projects that do it in neuroscience. So I don't want to get too deep into anything more, but I just want to point out that these two areas, constraints and translation, these are probably the primary things that are in the way. Those are the big roadblocks, and that's why they are still research problems. I'll give it back to Anita. Thank you. So as far as who's working on what, um, yeah, there are precedent, precious few groups doing the natrophotherial work. That, I mean, this this is certainly not everyone. There are more than this, but you may recognize uh, some of those that are shown. Um, a number of them, of them are working on the data acquisition and modeling tools, but not necessarily always for the purpose of emulating individual tissue. Uh, so there are 
uh, some, and there are those like the Burger Lab who are doing system identification, but it is a far cry from what's necessary to do the detailed work for a full individual. And so any, uh, although constraints are implicit in some of the applications, such as for the hippocampal, hippocampal prosthesis, um, they're largely in the context of the experiment and not in the content of, or, you know, in the context of whole brain emulation. Um, so what that is not to say that it is because this work can't be done. It's just not what's had the attention so far. Um, so, you know, when we look at, at our organization, what we're doing, we're trying to take a closer look at these bottlenecks and have set up work streams to address many of these issues. Um, however, you know, we're a current, we're currently a volunteer run nonprofit and funds will have to increase to expedite this work. Uh, but there are certainly other opportunity areas for organizations outside of ours um, and uh, opportunities to expedite this work substantially and increase focus on the necessary areas to achieve over emulation. Um, this is a small picture of what we're doing and what needs to be done, but we'd love to have more co further conversations and go deeper into the details of so what kind of rapid exchange needs to happen, the experiments that will need to be built, the achievable milestones uh, to expedite progress, um, both iteratively and to get to the whole of whole brain emulation. But I think I've taken up quite a bit of time, so I'm going to stop at this point, and maybe we can wrap back around to some of these ideas later. Awesome. Sounds great. This is a lot of info. I love it. Uh, okay, next one up, we have uh, Michael, who's going to give a bit of an overview of Compute. And Michael was also, I think, one of the people that may have been at both of the workshops last weekend. So that's great. So we have like extra context. Uh, so Michael, if you do want to say a few words now, it would be a wonderful time to hear from you. Uh, yeah, thanks, Alison. Um, uh, yeah, actually, uh, can I share a screen also? Um, I'll go kind of quickly because I think compute is just like a piece of it. And I thought, I think Randall and and Robert and uh, and Lisa gave like pretty good overviews. Um so I'll just uh, share screen. Here we go. All right. Let's see if that works. Cool. Is he okay? Yep. All right. Cool. So um, yeah, just a quick. Uh, you know, computers are like one piece of it. So do we? Do we? Ha uh, can we build a computer that can actually run uh, an, an emulation if we were able to scan it? At, you know, and record all the right criteria, um, and. Um, you know, did all the compressing along the way. Um, could could we even run that? So uh, I'll just jump in really quick. So, um, okay, so yeah, human brain, um, how do you run it on a big computer like this? Every computer looks something like this. You've got uh, three pieces, memory, interconnect, and processor. Um, so we're just going to go through each of those just uh, in general. So there's a lot of estimates for how, how much uh, compute the brain is actually doing. Um, I'm just choosing, and, and the, the, so this is from the, the first whole brain emulation roadmap. Hopefully, we uh, we, we do a new one uh, in May, um, uh, as, as far as like uh, you know, update the uh, uh, the estimates. Um, this is one from uh, uh, OpenPhil on estimates for how many ops, uh, how many flops uh, the brain is doing. Um, but I, I'm just going to choose a number, ten to the fifteen operations per second. Sorry, ten to ten to the uh, to the sixteen. Um, say like, you know, operating average at 10 hertz. Um, to give context, a supercomputer at Oak Ridge is doing, uh, the cost 600 million is doing uh, 10 to the 18 flops. So, you know, this is pretty achievable. If you wanted to do it with NVIDIA hardware, sort of like the latest gen chip, and, and let's say you're using BFLOAT 16, then you'd need 10 of those to achieve uh, the 10 petaflops, which is 350K. 
So, you know, this is pretty, pretty achievable. Um, this is all, but, but this is like not, a, not, not the memory and not the interconnect. That's just ops per second. Okay. So processing you can kind of do for somewhere between 350K to 600 to, to six, to 6 million. So what about memory? Um, uh, if you assume some, uh, like how much memory the brain is using, um, it's something like $3 million uh, in DRAM uh, costs. So communication though is like the hard part. Um, for for like current computers to solve, um, this is just kind of like the brain is intensely connect, uh, interconnected. You know, it's made of wires, um, and um, communication is something like ten to the sixteen bits per second. That's equivalent to the all the data on the internet. Just to give a give a sense, um, or just like sorry, it's ten times more than all of the internet traffic right now. Um, and so you need to connect a bunch of things together. Um, uh, these are just like kind of wires. Um, if you look at a supercomputer, it can do something like one hundredth the amount of communications needed uh, for a billion dollars. Um, the cheapest networking gear you can buy is ten dollars per gigabit. Um, uh, that is equivalent to um, so that's ten dollars um, total price for commodity networking gear to achieve brain scale communication would be eight hundred million dollars. Um, this this is like a lot. I mean, still achievable, but kind of a lot. Um, this is a, a thing that Fathom's working on is is like interconnect, and so we, we'd be something like fifty six million makes it like much more much more achievable. Um, and that is the overview of uh, what it would probably take to run a human brain. Love it. Uh, thank you. I also posted the longer version uh, of the talk here in the chat that you gave at Vision Weekend, and I still do have all of your slides. Um, uh, so if anyone's curious and you're okay with me sharing, I can do that later as well. Okay, last but not least, we have Anders, who can maybe do a little bit of an overrun uh, of some of the societal like considerations that we may or may not uh, uh, should, should should be going into this. And I just want to say Anders uh, is, will be chairing our in-person workshop in May, and he wrote the original whole brain emulation roadmap with a bunch of you also in collaboration uh, with that was published, I think, in 2007, which we're trying to also give a bit of a... Yeah, it, it's definitely time to totally supersede <laughs> this report. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it's an interesting issue on uh, seeing what we can learn from uh, both the kinds of predictions that were in the report and how we have overcome them. So generally, when it comes to kind of compute, I'm feeling like, okay, we're doing really well on that. When it comes to scanning, I'm kind of, whoa, we're doing even better than expected. Uh, it's just that my old field of computational neuroscience, I'm kind of thinking we are lacing off here. We're still not very good at taking the, that fantastic data and turn it into something that runs. So there are many gaps that need to be filled. And that, of course, leads to important questions. Can we say something about how likely they are to be filled if we could throw an arbitrary amount of money at the problem? It might be, for example, that um, if it's just a matter of ideas and insights, then an arbitrary money, amount of money might not solve it at all. Because, yeah, you could hire more researchers be hoping that one is lucky, but actually it's much harder to get that. If, on the other hand, every step can be turned into a piece of grind, you can hire engineers to solve that particular problem. If there are some unclear things, you could, in theory, multiply the approaches and actually run each approach. At that point, the success becomes much more likely. And I think this is worth investigating if we want to think about this as an AI safety approach. So it used to be around FHI that there was this idea that, okay, brain emulations versus AI. And back in the 2008, of course, AI seemed to be far away. 
So brain emulation might be one of the ways of getting into artificial intelligence. And then the years went by, and uh, Nick Bostrom and the rest of us, we developed uh, kind of the FHI view of the, oh, de novo AI looks risky and dangerous. So I was saying, oh, brain emulation, that's going to solve the problem. Then came an interesting counter-argument. Yeah, but in pursuing brain emulation, we might learn ways about how the brain works. So before we get to a brain emulation of a human brain, which is presumably value-aligned with human interests, at least to some approximation, we might end up understanding how to make a neuromorphic AI. And that uh, might be bad because now we get AI that we cannot align because it's a complete mess like the human brain, except that it doesn't have a virtue of the human brain of being human value aligned. So that was an argument that uh, made a lot of people at FHI cool off a bit on brain emulation. And then, of course, there came uh, the, the, the last decade uh, where AI moved ahead a lot. But now we have ended up in a world where actually the leading AI models are actually pretty neuromorphic, even though we're not at all based on anything like biological neural networks. We, the, we have a terrifying mess in the form of a large language model and a reinforcement learning agent. We're already kind of in the bad world from that argument from the start. Actually, brain emulation is unlikely to make this much worse. So then it becomes an interesting question. Could you speed up brain emulation enough that it matters? And if you actually believe in super short AI timelines, it doesn't matter because uh, the AI is going to show up uh, in five years or something like that. If you believe in relatively short, but not super short, then brain emulation might matter. And what we need to understand is that um, elasticity. Now, Coming at this problem from the final point in Randall's and Anita's presentation about the ethics and policy side, what do we need here? Part of it is maybe understanding whether that is, if it's doable. And uh, then there is also who's doing the investment. Um, again, there is this possibility that you could imagine that the general regard is a good idea. Now we do uh, some kind of Manhattan-style gigantic project with full government uh, support. That's a possibility. I really don't see that as very likely uh, because uh, so far we haven't seen that kind of super uh, unfortunate happening, even for things that might actually have been totally sensible to do it for. Could we see it from philanthropic money? Yeah, totally. I can kind of envision that. And we might also have a more interesting groundswells if there is a race to do other things that are useful in themselves, but smaller. The interesting part here is that I also did a model of uh, basically when do I believe brain emulation might happen. So I did a Monte Carlo simulation. And the main takeaway from that was not so much the number where I ended up thinking that you could end up with brain emulation, but the ordering of different factors. Is this going to be a shock to society or not? Uh, basically, my argument was if you have a mouse simulation, and uh, that is the best you can possibly do with a powerful computer. And we know that uh, 15 years down the line, it's going to be a dog or a monkey simulation. And then a few years after that, it's going to be a human one. Society will get some time to adapt. That sounded like a nice scenario. And it's also there requires that you're kind of bounded by compute, but not by scanning or by understanding of turning scans into simulations. The nightmare scenario in that little Monte Carlo paper was we have scans and we try to simulate them and we have enough compute, but nothing works. Nothing works. And over time, people say, yeah, right, that never works. 
And then one day, a, a clever grad student finally figured out what we missed. And suddenly we go to the brain emulation with a lot of overhang. You can suddenly do a lot. That would be dramatic and disruptive and uh, would probably be much more of a mess. Again, we have this interesting situation that unless um, the compute turns out to be harder because of architectural reasons, we might be more in that scenario if it's possible to get rapid uh, brain emulation timeline, which would require much more effort in making sure that you don't get the wrong kind of disruption. So there are the obvious ethical issues. You want to make sure that uh, we do virtual lab animal ethics in the right way, and that you also make sure that when you once you start getting to more and more morally considerable uh, the test subjects, uh, both uh, as animals and as humans, you actually have done the whole work and make sure that people say this is being done in a proper ethical manner. Um, there is also an interesting issue, well, how much will the law affect this? And the, the sad answer is the law will only affect it once people start suing each other, and uh, once you actually get kind of human-level stuff. That's going to be relatively late. We might still want to do some groundwork of making sure that there are some good ideas floating around there when people get uh, surprised by it. So overall, there are other considerations that come up that we haven't talked about that might be side considerations, like computer security. So this is a paper I wrote uh, with the late Peter Eckersley, where we noted that a world where you can do brain emulation, but you can't secure them, is a scary, scary world. You actually want to do the, uh, the, the right kind of computer security here for the sake of the emulated minds. And um, there are similar, more practical things, of course, uh, before that of securing uh, systems. A lot of these things, I think, one can uh, think about more carefully once we have a basic technical and scientific uh, questions uh, ready. But I do think they need to be baked into a roadmap in uh, development. It's not like something we can add later on. Oh, yeah, security, we bolt that on. That never works in software. We can't bolt on ethics uh, later on. But we need to have a bit of a sense of what we think is easily movable and what might turn out to be uncertain and hard to move. And we might also want to think about, can we set up a research, small research project to figure out those things that we might not be able to solve at the workshop in May, but actually might say, okay, this is a, a sub-goal. Let's work on this for a few months to figure it out. And then we can add that as kind of addendum to the strategy. Because what I dream about is ending up with a roadmap that actually is a roadmap and also gives us some policy advice about what this is good for, what it can do, what it cannot do. And so one can talk with people about that. Okay, I've been ranting on too long, Harry. I want to hear from you guys. Awesome. Great. Okay, I have a discussion question that I'm going to lead in with. Um which is just why have previous projects failed. But before that, I would love to see if David, that you want to make a few comments, given that you were also at both of these workshops and uh, to also like round things up, perhaps uh, if that's okay. And then we'll sure. move into discussion. Great. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't plan or prepare any remarks, but, um, but I have been thinking about this more and more in the last couple of weeks. And so I, I guess I want to name some, uh, questions and some potential answers, uh, that don't seem to have been covered. Um, so, uh, one question that's on my mind is, uh, if we are going to do a big human uploading project, what, what is sort of the, um, economic mechanism that makes sense? Uh, and it, it, both in terms of pr provisioning the funds for it, uh, but also once the capability exists, 
there's a sort of uh, p- political economy question of, well, we're pro- probably going to upload a relatively small number of people, probably less than a thousand people, if we're using this to try and uh, save save the world from uh, from malicious AIs. And then they're going to, you know, we're going to have some number of copies of some relatively small number of people, and that that whole system is going to need to socially arrange into a trustworthy institution of some kind. Um, and that that needs some thought. Uh, and that probably also it influences the way that we want to get this thing started. Uh, you know, we could, one could imagine raising funds by basically selling slots of who's going to be in the set of people that get uploaded, which may be a good idea or a very bad idea, or that you know just may need some careful thinking about what the mechanism design should be. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing uh, I want to mention is in terms of the, uh, the the sort of impact on AI from having partial progress and getting more insight in neuroscience. Um, so I think both for for that reason and also just for speed and sort of being doing experiments about the right thing, uh, I really like the idea of having all the partial progress be on human brain organoids. So like small, small things that are human genome cultured and vaguely brain-like, but basically don't have the developmental morphology to organize into anything cognitive. Um, But that will be a great testing ground to figure out what ion channels and transmembrane proteins actually matter in human genome neurons, uh, while also not being like brains that are sort of like partially, uh, partially cognitive that then could end up inspiring more progress in AI. Um, So that's another... Uh, another angle. And then another thing I want to mention is just the scanning approach, which I hadn't thought of, uh, of combining expansion microscopy and electron microscopy. So you do, do some expansion and tag, uh, tag ion channels with gold or iron or some other heavy metals in, 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 instead of fluorescence. Uh, there, there, it seems like there may be some way to get a little bit of multimodality, even with electron beams as the scanning, scanning method. Uh, with expansion, we ha- that helps with partitioning, and that also just reduces the requirements in terms of the resolution we need to do the electron beam scanning at. Um, and then, uh, uh, yeah, basically, we'll, we'll we'll read out in parallel with the electron beams the morphology of the lipid membranes, which is necessary to get the right connectivity, and also the concentrations of the relevant transmembrane proteins, which is necessary to get the right dynamics. Um, one one thing that I, I I'm a big believer in is that just getting the connectivity is by no means never it's never going to be enough. Uh, but there's going to be some set of transmembrane proteins which, if we get both those and the connectivity, uh, will be enough if the central dogma of neuroscience or anything like it turns out to be true. Uh, so I'm particularly excited about this being a methodology for scanning. But it does seem feasible if we if we parallelize across thousands and thousands of microscopes that we could do that and do something like human uploading uh, in the next 10 years. Uh, I'll leave it there. Wow. Okay. A bunch of um, points of discussion. I would want to say that if you want to discuss anything in particular uh, to any of the points that any one of the presenters has made so far, and maybe do so in the chat, especially with clarification questions. And for now, maybe what we could be discussing here uh, and uh, and a loop is just like, what, why do you think guys have previous projects failed? Like what's different this time, if anything, um, you know, what was not possible before and why should it be different uh, this time? Anyone who has uh, any input on this, uh, go for it. Easy question. It, it does seem like some larger projects, like with the, you know, the Human Brain Project or Allen Institute that have done made 
awesome progress in a lot of ways toward a lot of things, you know, regarding uh, the understanding of the brain, you know, they don't necessarily have the same focus on whole brain emulation. Or if they did at one point, it got derailed at some point. And so they focused on more so what they can do. So if if people are wanting to talk about a focus project that we need to get whole brain emulation to happen, ensuring that that focus can stay and doesn't get derailed to other areas would be would be a starting point. I'm sure there a lot more to add than that, but you know, that can get us started. I, th- I think that's true. Quite a lot of projects have not had that clear focus. Or uh, like the Human Brain uh, Project, there was one guy with one focus and then a zillion research groups, because basically covered most of the funding for neuroscience in Europe, at, uh, who wanted to do their own stuff. And that didn't uh, work out well. There is another form of problem, and that is why haven't we gotten a working C elegance yet? And the, the answer seems to be C. elegans is probably and sadly the wrong kind of animal because it's so small, it's so hard to get the data from the individual synapse. At least that's the understanding I have gotten. So uh, while very, very briefly, uh, we actually had Stephen Larson at our uh, meeting and went into this in depth for a few hours. And um, he's under the impression that it could be done if you... Um, put a low number of millions of dollars into it in a somewhat timely manner at this point, and that the remaining uh, problems are engineering problems relating to doing finicky electrophysiology on on neurons, but they're not necessarily all that challenging. So you only order 10 million to years. One interesting thing here is, is it worth doing finicky neuroscience on C. elegance, or should one actually say, let's move to drosophilia instead? Because I think a lot has to do with the size of neurons and that the integument puts them under pressure. So it's kind of really messy from a purely mechanical research standpoint. It might actually be just that it's easier. Uh, I think it was Peter Passaro who at our original workshop was kind of talking about the British pond snail. And I have a feeling that maybe we should have listened to him about that. But I have some things to say about this because I did a project about 10 years ago trying to, to do uh, C. elegance uploading. Uh, and... At at the time, uh, expansion microscopy didn't exist. Uh, as as far as I could tell, there was no way of getting uh, static imaging in, in of the ion channel concentrations themselves directly. So I, my proposal was to to back that out indirectly from doing uh, a bunch of closed loop experiments with optogenetics and calcium indicators. Um, and uh, the reason that didn't work is basically that uh, the combination of uh, Imaging resolutions across space and time and the ability to sort of localize the calcium indicators to the nucleus all together was just a little bit below the margin of what was enough to. Oh, and and in combination with AI, you know, which uh, I I didn't know about uh, uh, AlexNet 10 years ago, although it had been invented. uh, But uh, but I was trying to do some old school Bayesian inference on that data. And just the combination of all those things, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to um, to back out those coefficients. Um, uh, So it's very different to take the approach of we can just scan everything, including the ion channel concentrations. And you know, we'll do some experiments in cultured cells to get, uh, to get the mapping between ion channel concentrations and dynamics. Um, and to the, to the other point of, should we even bother doing C. elegans? Uh, yeah, I think no. I mean, the, the, the only reason I was interested in doing it in the first place was as a sort of uh, inspiration to, you know, sort of, sort of like uh, 
you know, Project Mercury coming before Project Apollo. It's just like, yeah, we could do something vaguely like this. We're not going to reuse any of the hardware. Uh, it's just like to show that something vaguely like this could be done. So if we're now at a stage where uh, you know, the, the the interest in this is being stimulated by short timelines and we want to get the best possible shot at doing it, doing it quickly. Um, I would say not only we should skip C. elegans, but we should also skip Drosophila and Zebrafish and, and, and go straight to cultured human neurons, because that's where we're going to have the actual science question of what ion channels are important answered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I very much support the idea of doing things in culture. It's just a very well-controlled experiment, gives you the ability to know what your ground truth is so you know what you're actually aiming for when you're trying to pull out data and emulate yep plus you uh, nicely sidestep uh, a bunch of ethics issues yeah there's some ethics issues even with organoid but not as many as when you actually have an integrated animal and for at least answering these early questions this is exactly what you want any other proposals to throw in the head uh, I, I don't think we actually addressed your question Allison about why it, these other projects failed right well do you want to take a stab at it (laughs) i think some people have already tried slightly which is basically that unless you have a very if you have something there like darpa that is has a very precise format of how they go through competitors and then work their way towards the ones they really give support to but they never do you know as big a project as the hpp um you get this thing where you have suddenly a huge amount of money available and then a ton of interests come in, and then it all gets broken up because everybody wants a piece of the pie. Uh, so there's something about that fundamental structure that doesn't work. But, you know, others have tried, like the Allen Institute has set up their system to try to be able to produce data at scale, take experiments, make them really um, sort of industrial scale experiments, and then dump all the data on the researcher's desk at the end. That was their idea. And they wanted to do that by, you know, investigating pretty much all of the biological, the physiological components of what you needed in a mouse brain, and then also the connectome, you know, do the AEM work after that. And then if you look at it now, up to a certain point, that data collection worked really well and the study, and then it's slowed down a lot since then. And it seems as if an, an institutional kind of um, moment, you know, sort of inertia has, has set in where it becomes more like the typical neuroscience university approach where you have people already set up with their labs and their experiments and just trying to kind of guard their fiefdoms and keep their money where it is. Um, So something happens there that is about the institutional setup and about the project setup that just, it takes away the, you know, the rush, the, 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 the speed of advancement. I don't really know what it is. It might be that we actually need to think about institutional setups or uh, how uh, such a project might be. It might be that it actually needs to be a bunch of either competing labs or labs that are kind of time-limited. In some sense, they work on stuff until they're no longer fresh and other things can take over in some overlapping fashion. Any any thoughts on uh, company versus nonprofit institute sort of thing? I, I have some thoughts just based on my experience at Halcyon and my experience at Kernel and the others, which is that um, if there are, like you remember my slide with the red and blue areas and the red ones are big on research, the blue one is more an engineering project. If you've got things that still have a bunch of research in there and you don't know how you're going to make a profit within two to five years, it's very hard to keep the focus in a for-profit company because at some point, someone up his Allen Institute and that's not even a for-profit, uh, it's really hard to stay focused because the focus always drifts toward, well, when are we getting some money out of this? Um, 
If you have an engineering project, on the other hand, and it's a matter of scaling up or perfecting the engineering, optimizing the engineering, then probably the for-profit model is a good one. Yeah, it tends to seem like for the different parts of the puzzle, there are good models that could complement anything that would be an engineering issue could be best done through competition, um, through, you know, bidding or prizes or, you know, any, any method like that to encourage growth. Uh, but then when it comes to the research questions, having uh, focused groups on answering certain questions, uh, could be the way to go in a, in a really expedited format. Another thing could be, you know, clarifying milestones where, okay, maybe we're not at whole brain emulation yet, but we can achieve this milestone and it will still be productive for all of these other things are still profitable or, you know, thinking of it in terms by which step uh, can have an output that a for-profit company could look at and say, oh, okay, well, let's at least get to this one. We can still use that and then we can move to the next step if it makes sense, um, which at least will get you one place there and it doesn't fall apart. Any other comments on this? Um, I, I just want to throw something out to the group. It seems like there's a lot of, uh, bright people here with like expertise that could be, that is, seems extremely relevant. Um, I don't know maybe half the people here. Uh, so like, how do we, how do we meet each other or like, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's a while before the, uh, uh, before the, uh, you know, whole brain emulation roadmap number two. Um, how do we, how do we connect, um, before that? You have that discord server, right, Michael? Yeah, I could I could try to add everyone to that. Sounds good. Yeah, we have, I think Lisa has a Slack group that's more focused on the uh, neuro and AI part. Um, okay. And then we have, if you have a Discord, that, that would be great. I'm also happy to co help coordinate like any, for example, smaller follow-up meetings or something that are mostly focused on the whole brain emulation AI uh, hunch. Uh, so feel free to just, you know, write me an email and I can make an email chat just with uh, folks that are that are on this call right now. And then uh, that could also work. Could you maybe put an invite link to the Discord in the chat, perhaps? I'll do that. Yep. Yeah, hopefully we start the whole rate. I mean, like the one in London with, um, or, or wherever it is, uh, with like a fairly fleshed out plan to do uploading and then like really stress test it or, um, you know, proceed on that. Because uh, in some sense, it's like too long. So, so the old workshop, but that was much more exploratory. Well, that one was, we took two days and we had basically different invited speakers talk about their thing. And then I had already written parts of a roadmap and we used that to update the roadmap. I think now we're in a better position, but yes, we might actually start out by having way more of a roadmap and sketches. One of the suggestions I have for how we do this workshop is that we also make sure that beforehand we write a one page each about kind of our main hobby horses or the main points we really want to bring up so we know that those are somewhere on the table so we can kind of get started right away from it. Yeah, so far I think the request for people at the workshop was to give a five-minute intro presentation on their perspective on hope and relations and AI safety. If you think we should be making this much more succinct as an ask, for example, like actually sketch out, you know, like um, 
um, you know, like a, a very ambitious project with the kind of support that would get us there. We can also. Oh, I, I want uh, there to be this one pager. Different people might have very different ideas about what is very important or what they want to contribute. But uh, I think there are, Michael might have some numbers he really want to put in point at these technologies. Uh, Randall uh, might want to have a different structure. Uh, some of us might have other little hobby horse of things that we just want to have. So that if you take these one pages and just put them together into a folder, you already got an intro to some things we ought to be talking about or should be common knowledge. Uh, the the five-minute presentation is also good for actually making it alive. But I think it's useful to have it written down because that can also be much more exact. When you sit down and write stuff as text, you actually can get the references and details and numbers right. Well, it's a different thing when we're talking and interacting. Yeah, I think one thing is um, that not everyone can make it to an in-person workshop. So maybe we'll do the call for one pages actually a little broader than people that can just make it to the workshop. Uh, and so, you know, I invite everyone on this call, certainly. If you're interested in producing a one pager that we then consider at the workshop, that makes it in, into that kind of like just, you know, like kickstart discussion questions. And please let me know. I'm happy to uh, include that. Um, yeah. Okay, Lisa, you had your hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to briefly raise the question that is it our core motivation here to contribute to alignment or is it our core motivation to build whole brain innovation? Um, I think this should perhaps inform a little bit how we approach the workshop because I'm not sure to what extent we have explored the strategic outputs uh, or like the strategic angle on this. And I just wanted to sort of put out this question so we maybe like keep in mind is it the best focus to work out extreme technical detail, which is really fascinating and fun? Um, or do we need to think about also a little bit, how will this help and like which aspect should we focus on? I, I think that's a great point, but I do think working it out in detail is actually a good way of testing uh, because we want to kind of make the best possible stab at this is how we think it could be done. And maybe we, you know, we are overly optimistic or not, but we need to kind of get that done so you then can use that to think about the strategic issue. There is still that uh, question, can it actually be speeded up so much that it beats uh, De Novo AGI? There is a bunch of ethical issues that might still render it a bad idea for various reasons. But working on that first and then trying to do the technical stuff in the last uh, two hours is probably not going to be quite as productive as trying our best to do the technical and then making sure we use that to inform, okay, what does this tell us strategically? If our best idea about how to do it still looks like, okay, it's going to take 15 years uh, and it's going to take uh, this many zillion dollars, that's relevant for the strategy because it might still be that uh, a zillion dollars actually way more. It's actually better to put a zillion dollar into AI alignment in that case. Um, I would like to propose that maybe it's also useful if we send this video maybe as an intro to people that will be at the workshop just to provide some color coding uh, on like, you know, things that we may or may not discuss. Um, and I, you know, welcome any vetoes or any I want my parts uh, edited out or something from anyone here. Totally fine. But just to provide some like coding or like some onboarding for folks that, that may be joining. Um, and I'm hoping that Lisa, we can, we will be answer, able to answer your question after this in-person workshop then. And it should definitely be a discussion point there. Um, I know we're three minutes over now. I can stay on longer, as I mentioned, for half an hour. I also appreciate if people cannot. 
Uh, for those that cannot, I would say that uh, if you want any specific meetings organized that are particularly around this topic, I'm very happy to do so. Um, and to do so also uh, with this group of folks, because we have a few folks from the Neurotech group here in, uh, in his bell. Um, and then there's the more AI alignment focus Slack that Lisa has. And then there's the Discord that a few people join for the Mega Mind Uploading Project. So those are like a few potential channels. Um, and then I also want to say that uh, if anyone here wants to have anything um, really included in the upcoming in-person workshop, please let me know. Uh, but I would be staying on for a little longer because I know that, for example, Logan still had a few uh, comments to make. And if anyone here wants me to kind of coordinate a bit of a discussion in the last 30 minutes, uh, then please feel free to either privately DM me on specific things you think we should be talking about uh, or anything else. Um, does that sound good? Anything that anyone really wants to see done here as we still have a uh, have everyone on the call? Okay, then maybe I'll give it to Logan if you're still around. Yep, I'm still here. Uh, yeah, so thank you, Allison. I, uh, this has been a super interesting discussion, and it's uh, it's it's interesting to see sort of how the 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 AI alignment sort of uh, coalesces with the with the whole brain emulation stuff. That's definitely an angle that I haven't taken as much before. Um, but as you've seen in the chat, uh, we've been sort of uh, I've been sort of pushing for this this concept of using X-ray microscopy. Uh, as a imaging modality for more rapidly and economically uh, acquiring whole brain um, whole, whole brain uh, connectomes, and one of the one of the things that I've really been interested in for a while is combining this with expansion microscopy, uh, because right now the um, the the um, there's sort of this trade off between resolution and uh, speed. And as as I'm sure you're aware, expansion microscopy makes everything bigger. And so it uh, if you and although you get a better resolution, you end up with um, you, you end up having to uh, essentially uh, uh, take a lot longer to image the sample. And this can potentially make it less economical overall. Um, however, X-ray microscopy is known as uh, probably the fastest imaging modality out there, and it still achieves a fairly good resolution. I think um, uh, current synchrotron systems for the types of applications we're thinking thinking of can do uh, maybe around 200 nanometers, uh, maybe a little better than that. Um, and uh, so then, if you expand 20 times uh, via iterative expansion microscopy, um, then you've got a system which is. Uh, You've got a system which is down to the same resolution as EM, but um, uh, you the but you can you can uh, achieve achieve it much more rapidly, uh, and so it's uh, I think that it's a super promising area. There's been some chat. There's been some talk in the discussion about um, labeling. Um, so how much volume at once can you image with CT? It, the answer is it really varies a lot depending on the system and the hardware you have. But in general, um, it, it, you can image a fairly large volume. There is some uh, concern. I, I mean, I would imagine that you could split up like a human brain into into um, uh, 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 I, uh, I, I mean, I guess if you're thinking human brain, it might take a little longer because you'd have to split it up into more pieces. But um I would think that it would be possible, especially if you if you did some beamline customization. I think it would be possible to 
to um, image fairly large chunks, um, maybe something on the order of uh, things that are four or five centimeters, maybe even a little bigger than that. Um, because synchrotron beams are coherent, uh, laboratory X-ray sources have this issue where they um, you have to have it super close to the sample, and so bigger samples don't work as well in order to get decent resolution. But with synchrotron beams, they're highly coherent, and so you can have much longer um, focal lengths, essentially, which makes it a lot easier to... Um, uh, so there are several synchrotron data sets, Robert. Um, there was a, a paper by Wei Chung and Lin Lee's group that they did something called synchrotron nanohollow which was sort of an advanced version of synchrotron, or they image it at different distances and use some fancy math to increase the resolution further. Um, so that's something that is out there. There's also there's also various other papers, but it's sort of you have to examine the literature. Um, uh, back to the problem of color. Uh, so synchrotron imaging um, and X-ray imaging in general can do multiple colors, but it's a lot harder to distinguish between them if they have close um, uh, close absorption peaks. And um, yeah, yeah. So there are some people who are interested in this, but it's like a fairly small number of people relative to the EM people. Um, uh, but yeah, we should definitely talk to them. Uh, I think. Anyway, the color, sorry, I keep getting sidetracked by the chat because it's super interesting, but the color issue, um, so a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that I've been super inspired by is, um, barcoding where you essentially, you, you stand with, with a series of colors and then you, you're able to, um, uh, you, you, like you, you do iterative, uh, iterative colors and then you have a sequence of colors. And so it's like maybe, gold, silver, gold, gold, silver versus gold, 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 silver, silver or something uh, corresponding to different biomarkers. And because, again, because of the speed, you'd be able to image it multiple times relatively quickly compared to other imaging modalities. And so I think that there is, um, I, I think that there's promise there as well. So, I mean, yeah, Robert, uh, the, or, the, or, or Randall, the, the idea of inertia, I think is definitely part of the issue. Um, uh, if there's a, is there a realistic way to wash indicators? That's a very good question. Um, so I think with the expansion microscopy, it would help some, but that definitely would be a technical problem to overcome, uh, because the expansion makes everything less dense. It would make it, um, it, it would make it potentially easier to wash out, uh, uh, um, for the barcoding. But yeah, that definitely would be a, a thing to consider as one of the more challenging technical problems. Another te technical problem is making sure that the sample is stable enough under the x-rays to actually not fall apart. Uh, and that's something that I understand has been uh, somewhat of an issue. Um, the uh, And so, but some of these new expansion microscopy technologies like Magnify, which can do like 11-fold expansion in one, uh, in one go, is actually, um, they use a higher monomer concentration, as I understand. And so you end up with a much... Uh, much sturdier sample, like it's a significantly higher monomer concentration because they they basically super optimized everything, and uh, uh, you end up with a much sturdier sample, and the much sturdier samples might be able to withstand the uh, um, X-ray beams. However, there's still some concern. Uh, yeah, that is a good point. There there might be a trade-off there. Uh, still, having the the density be low. I, it kind of depends. I mean, I know that you can put biomolecules, you can post-expand stain with biomolecules on the order of the size of antibodies. So um, that's definitely something that is worth worth considering. 
as possibilities, especially if you're able to get like nanobodies connected to gold nanoclusters or silver nanoclusters or something like that, and then use those as barcodes, you might be able to wash them out. Um, yeah, partitioning a lot. There's sort of a trade-off with everything. So, I mean, there's trade-offs with resolution, with speed, with how much you cut it up. Um, and so, I mean, you definitely have, there's definitely a lot of like sort of balancing acts to be done, but I just think that this is generally speaking an area that has, that deserves more attention. And so I wanted to bring it up here because I, I, um, I'm actually, uh, in communication with, uh, one of the few people who's working on x-ray connectomics and I'm trying to essentially, uh, I, I'm, I'm actually working in a, a, a PhD at WashU on a totally different project, but, um, I'm, I'm in communication with this fellow, Adrian Wanner, who's uh, an X-ray, uh, has access to a synchrotron X-ray beam line. I'm trying to figure out how to get him samples that can be imaged by X-ray um, expansion microscopy and trying to do a proof of concept for X-ray expansion microscopy. Uh, and I think there's a way to do that. When I tried to do it when I was an undergrad, I failed because uh, the density of the, uh, uh, the dense, for one thing, I was using a, um, a laboratory scale X-ray microscope. And for another thing, the density, uh, got way too low for the microscope to pick up any good contrast. Um, but, uh, there's been a new preprint that came out that is called unclearing microscopy. And essentially what that does is it uses a uh, horseradish peroxidase to, so Robert, do you have a question? Uh, yeah, actually. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> Is the integrity thing like similar to how you bleach um, things in a confocal microscope? And so that therefore, if you were to take a brain and lossy partition it into slices, uh, that you could simply entirely overcome that problem? Or is it a, another issue that's not that? So when you're saying slices, like how small slices are you talking? Uh, well, so we're assuming lossless partitioning, which I think you could get like almost arbitrarily small, like even millimeter. Because if sure. you expand to 16x, say, right, yeah, um, yeah. then the equivalent size of the blade is a lot smaller. So, sure, like let's say a millimeter thick after sure, expansion. Sure. Okay, after expansion. Does that completely solve this problem or or not? Um, of of, uh, of stability, you mean? Yeah, of the integrity. Oh, oh, I, I mean, I think, I mean, if you're if you're sectioning that small, um, it would actually be better to have a larger uh, sample. Uh, than that. So maybe a few millimeters to a few centimeters post expansion. Um, uh, because that way, it, it, I mean, that way there's just a sort of a larger body to support itself. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. So you'd have like 500 slices, uh, that are each like three to five millimeters thick. And then does yep. that solve your whole, uh, integrity problem at least, you know, not considering not, all the other problems? Not necessarily. Um, so it really comes down to whether these new expansion techniques that have higher monomer densities are able to withstand X-ray beams. Because I think, I, I, as I heard from Adrian, he, he's heard through the grapevine that somebody tried to image uh, expanded samples using sort of standard expansion microscopy with X-rays in a synchrotron, and it didn't work because they fell apart. Uh, but I think there are ways to, for, for one thing, I think, I, I think that you can, these newer ways that have sturdier samples are probably significantly sturdier because from what I've heard, you can actually hold them in your hands uh, and they won't fall apart. Whereas one, one the thing like, earlier ones just, go ahead. As a really dumb question here, because I've experimented with this stuff, like, can, can you not simply cryoprotect the expanded slices and then cool them down so they're vitrified? 
And now, so that's a good question. Flash? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I actually asked that question myself recently to Adrian, um, who has more of a background in X-ray physics than I do. Um, and what Adrian told me was that that's actually not the best approach um, because the damage doesn't necessarily come from the heating because the uh, X-ray passes over each part of the sample um, it, or it passes through each part of the sample fairly briefly. Um, it's not necessarily the heating that's the issue. It's the uh, ionization. And mm-hmm. so um, you get a lot of ionization from really, really bright x-rays that then start to cause the sample to come apart. Uh, and so that's that's more the issue. And it actually, the conductivity um, gets worse when, uh, or, or it gets greater when it's, uh, when it's colder. And so you end up actually potentially with more damage if you cool it down. Um, however, that does bring up ideas of like, what if you could have some kind of like redox compensation uh, spread throughout the sample, would that increase the stability? And then furthermore, I mean, I, I think there's got to be a way to expand a sample and then just like thread a whole bunch of polymer, something through it that just locks it into place. Um, that would, that would potentially get in the way of the barcoding thing, uh, come to think of it. But, um, I, I just, I, I think there's got to be a fairly straightforward way to, um, and, and I don't think this has been explored much because it has been needed, but, uh, there, I think there's ways to, there's probably ways to embed samples and, um, just get it, get it sturdy. Uh, so yeah, um, the, the, those are my thoughts. And, uh, yeah, right now, right now I'm working with Adrian. I'm sort of more working on an advisory capacity. He's trying to, he has some beam time coming up in May, I believe. And, uh, we're trying to figure out if it's going to be possible to sneak in a few samples for a proof of concept. Uh, that um, prior to that time, uh, we were working with somebody who was part of a company. However, the company didn't have like some business interests that were complicated and they didn't want to continue with the um, collaboration. Uh, and so that was kind of sad, but they, um, but essentially this was, this was the people who did this unclearing microscopy thing I mentioned. Uh, I think unclearing microscopy will give, much better contrast than just sort of a standard expanded tissue because if you stain standard expanded tissue as i've personally seen with my experiments you don't get enough contrast to see hardly anything um yeah robert this might be a a, a good thing to talk about in more detail because i think there's i, I don't want to use up everyone's time here but um there's a lot to say <laughs> obviously uh but yeah i i i would be interested in doing another communication with um, those of you who are interested in talking about this further and seeing if there's any way we can potentially um, uh, uh, pot- potentially get some more um, discussion going on this. Um, yeah, the, the unclearing stuff, I, I just before we go, um, I want to mention unclearing because uh, one of the issues with expansion is it lowers the density of electrons that can be either absorbed or cause a phase shift. And this is bad for uh, X-ray microscopy because um, it sort of depends on on having a certain density to pick up signal. Uh, however, there is this method called unclearing when, in which you essentially link a bunch of horseradish peroxidase to all the cellular features. And then the horseradish peroxidase, you can do a silver stain or a diaminobenzidine stain, and then you end up getting... Uh, you, you can actually see it with the naked eye. Um, it was in the, uh, it was pr- developed by someone named Anz Massad, who I was mentioned, who I pr- previously had tried to rope into the collaboration. And, um, uh, 
yeah, it, but the the protocol for it has been published as a preprint, and so it seems like it seems like it should be doable, even if she's not involved. Um, which I was really sad that she her company got all mired in like these weird IP issues, but. I think they're still developing their 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 portfolio at this point, so they didn't want to um, unveil too much. But yeah, the um, the unclearing thing I think is sort of the missing link to expansion X-ray microscopy. And then basically, I think the you could potentially combine that with the new Magnify expansion microscopy, is, which is one of the ones that uses this uh, more stable expansion methods, and it still achieves like eleven fold expansion. Uh, so. That's that'll be my send off. If anyone ha- else has questions before we go, I, I just don't want to like. I feel like I've been talking like for a lot, so you know I don't want to like suck up too much time here. But um, yeah, I'd love to talk more with you guys later on a sort of dedicated uh, call for this type of thing. And yeah, yeah. yeah this is really cool. Uh, uh, my my only problem is okay. This is really cool input of data where we get uh, potentially getting all that. How do I now wake up the, my fellow computational neuroscientists to actually do something useful with this? Uh, yes. That is an interesting sociological problem I need to work on. And we might actually want to try to see if we can grab some good uh, computational neuroscientist names uh, for the workshop. I'm going to look around and see if I can find somebody in the vicinity that might be useful. For also giving a little bit of an outside perspective from maybe not our community about what they think they can do and see how much their mind gets blown about, oh, is this even possible? Or whether they have some good points that we're totally missing. Yeah, he's thinking which way it might be fun. Uh, he, he's, uh, I don't know what he's been doing recently, but uh, yeah, uh, we should t- definitely look at some of these names. Yeah, thanks. Okay, any other remarks? Robert, anyone else? Have we done? I guess I would I would also be interested in having a follow up conversation with interested people about funding mechanisms. Cool. Okay, that's great because I'm currently already writing a follow up to everyone who's spoken here on the Zoom. A asking you if you give permission to share the video. B asking you if there's a person or topic you'd like to nominate that I'm going to be inviting to the workshop to the in person workshop because all of you will be going there as well. And then the third one is, is there any follow-up meeting or anything else you'd like me to organize that's virtual prior to the workshop? Um, and so if you drop that in there in the inline item that will be sent your way in the next minute or so, uh, then I, I will be very happy to do so. And please send names, ideally, Randall, uh, with uh, with emails <laughs> to me, then I can reach out and, and I can take over from here. Um, okay, great. Well, that's... Uh, that also, I guess, like preempts my final closing points, which is there's a follow-up email in your inbox in the next minute or so to everyone who has at least spoken on the video here. Um, I already beat you to it. Okay, wonderful. Well, that that's one. I have one yes then, uh, and so unless I hear a veto, that that would be the default. But I, I do want to give people the space to veto as well. Okay, wonderful. Well, thanks everyone for joining. Thanks a ton for uh, giving such succinct and very short presentations. That was really, really appreciated. I'm super excited for the in-person workshop. Anything I can help to make things happen beforehand, I'm very happy to do. Um, and um, yeah, I think I'm happy to use the Neurotech container as a potential container, the virtual seminar, if you are okay with other folks joining who've been pre-selected to join the virtual seminar group. Um, okay, thanks everyone. And I will be following up by email now. Thank this you. was great. Bye-bye.
Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.